Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dylan McCullough had made it. He had it all. The dream job is running backs coach for the Kansas City Chiefs, a beautiful wife, children, and a house full of love. But something was missing. Dylan McCullough knows who he is, but he didn't know who he was. Given up at birth for adoption, McCullough loved the woman that took him in, but he longed to know more. Who were his birth parents? Are they still alive? Could he find them? This journey would ultimately take Dylan McCullough from the Pennsylvania House of Representatives to the world of social media and to finally to the last place he thought he would ever end up. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN Sarah Spain as we talk about how the road to self-discovery isn't always as long as you think it is. Now we present Runs in the Family by Sarah Spain. Runs in the Family by Sarah Spain. Carol Briggs placed her newborn son on the bed and removed all of his clothes. She tried to find herself in his face, searching his mouth, his nose, his eyes. Not yet, she thought. She saw only his father. She looked him up and down, making a mental note of each of his ten tiny toes, chubby legs, puffy belly, and two little arms reaching up at her. In my mind, Briggs said, that was probably going to be the last time I ever saw him. It was December 1st, 1972, and a big snowstorm had hit the greater Pittsburgh area that week. Briggs had gone sledding with some of the other girls the night before, dragging a cardboard box up and down a big hill that emptied out right at the Zor Home for Mothers, Babies, and Convalescents in Allison Park, Pennsylvania. She woke up in labor around 2 a.m., and just 32 minutes later, she was a mother. She named her baby John Kenneth Briggs. Her parents and her older brother drove the hour from her hometown of Youngstown, Ohio, to be with her at the hospital. After cleaning out her room at the maternity home and signing some papers, she was back in Ohio the next day, ready to resume her life as a 16-year-old high schooler and National Honor Society member. No one outside of her immediate family and her cousin Robin knew about the baby. Only when she was preparing to sign the adoption papers did Briggs consider sharing the news with the father, a teenage fling who had gone off to college before she discovered she was pregnant. She ultimately decided against it. He was a kid, too, she says. He was off at college on a scholarship. I think I may have felt that I kind of got myself in this. I'm going to do what I need to do to work my way through it. With her parents' blessing, Briggs had decided that when the child was born, she would put him up for adoption. My mother was still cleaning up my room for me once a week, she says. I wasn't in a position to be anybody's mother. I thought this was the best for him, that I allow him to be placed with some family that would be able to give him all of the great things that I had coming up, because I had a mother and a father. I just didn't want him to get cheated out of anything. In her last interaction with the adoption agency, Briggs was told that baby John had been placed with a doctor and his wife in Columbus, Ohio. In early 2017, now Kansas City Chiefs running backs coach Dylan McCullough signed on to coach the running backs at USC, having spent the previous six years in the same position at Indiana University. A few months before making the move to Southern California, he and his wife Darnell welcomed their fourth son into the world. For the fourth time, the couple provided doctors with Darnell's medical history, but couldn't do the same for Dylan's side of the family. At 44 years old, McCullough knew nothing about where he came from. Growing up in Youngstown, his adoptive mother, Adele Culmer, could tell him only that he was adopted at a very young age and that she had no information about his birth parents. For a long time, that was enough. McCullough wasn't interested in finding them anyway. There was enough trouble in Youngstown those days, and he didn't want to burden anyone who might have bigger things to worry about. Things changed when he had his first child, and as his family grew, so too did his desire to know of his past. He wanted to know who gave him his deep voice and his muscular build, and to whom he owed his pensive nature and quiet intensity. He wondered where his son Dasan got his height, and which grandfather or uncle his bespeckled son Dea might favor. He was so hungry for information that he never questioned whether the search might lead him to answers he couldn't handle. I didn't know how people would receive things one way or another. I didn't have a plan, I just knew I wanted to find out. New laws in Ohio and Pennsylvania had called for the unsealing of adoption records, giving McCullough new hope that he might find his birth parents. 
In November 2017, more than a year after filling out the requisite paperwork and years after his search began, he finally received his adoption files in the mail. For the first time, he saw his original birth certificate, complete with his name, John Kenneth Briggs, and the name of his mother, Carol Denise Briggs. There was no information about his father. Adele Comer was living in a three-bedroom house on a cul-de-sac in Youngstown with her husband, popular local radio host A.C. McCullough, and their young son, Damon, when she got the call. It was a social worker reaching out to see whether she and A.C. would come see an infant at an adoption agency in Pennsylvania. Not long after the tragic death of their second son, Alex, who died of an intestinal birth defect after just 28 days, the young couple had started serving as foster parents, and they were looking to adopt. In January 1973, they met six-week-old baby John. He was asleep in a bassinet, Comer says, and she put him in my arms, and when he woke up, his eyes were looking straight at me. It was an instant connection. Love. Mother-son. By March of that year, John Kenneth Briggs had been renamed Dylan Scott McCullough, and he was living at home with his new parents, Adele and A.C. We were still in love. A good couple, Comer says. We went to church, partied, went to cookouts. We were working together and doing this together and wanting to make a home for our children. We knew that God's hand was in it. Dylan came so fast to us, we knew that it was meant to be, both of us. But things changed quickly. Comer's father had a stroke, and though A.C. wanted to put him in a nursing home, Comer brought her dad to live with the family in Youngstown. Their marriage deteriorated, and when Dylan was just two years old, A.C. moved out. They went through a lot of hurt and disappointment, but they took it, Comer says of her sons. I said, God gives you an example of what to be and what not to be. You have got to make the choice. And that's all I had to say. And they got it. When Dylan was in elementary school, Comer came home to find out he had cut three gashes into the couch for which she had just finished two years of layaway payments. Kids at school had been teasing him about being adopted, and he accused Comer of loving him less than her birth son, Damon. She explained that she loved the two boys differently, one because he had been in her belly and the other because she had chosen him. After that, Dylan McCullough rarely spoke of his adoption. He got good at pretending to be whole. The void was there, he says. I wish that it wasn't, but I think I did a good job of hiding it. After the divorce, Comer had relationships with a few other men, some of whom were combative and abusive. Some men don't understand what respect is, she says. I've got two sons, and I'm not going to allow my children to grow up with this type of lifestyle, this drama. Damon sometimes tried to physically defend her, but then he left for college, and Dylan felt too small, physically and emotionally, to step in. His response to the violence was to try to tune it out, become emotionless, put blinders on, and dream of a way out of the house and out of Youngstown. Comer acknowledges that she contributed to the chaos in her own way as well. Biggest drama queen in the world, okay, she says. They called me Ma Barker because I'd shoot you and ask questions later. Comer took Dylan with her to therapy for a while, hoping to make things at home a little less turbulent. New boyfriends came and went, but she mostly settled into life as a single mom, taking on multiple jobs to support her sons, including as a switchboard operator at the Cuyahoga County Department of Human Services, a waitress, a social worker, and a short-order cook at the local bowling alley. She did her best to rear the boys on her own. But they moved a lot, and she struggled to pay the bills, sometimes having to choose between electricity and a working phone. But Comer stressed the importance of an education, insisting that she see the boys' homework to make sure they were taking it seriously. She taught them the value of a dollar and the importance of faith, demanding that they use a portion of their monthly child support for Sunday school and tithes at church. And she was always shuttling them to activities from the theater program at the Youngstown Playhouse to football, basketball, and track practices. Dylan was a bit of a late bloomer in terms of talent, but the passion for football was always there. Early on in Pee Wee, he heard his name over the loudspeaker, and a light went off in his head. He fell in love with the game and started carrying a football with him everywhere he went, even to bed. It was an escape, he says. When I was out there practicing, you didn't think about the electricity is off, you know? You didn't even think about anything like that. You were just out there bawling, doing your thing, and competing and bonding with your friends. Comer was a one-woman cheer squad, bringing multiple signs to Dylan's games and running up and down the sideline, rooting him on. One night, when her ride didn't show up, she took her son's moped to the game. He looked up in the stands and saw her, still wearing his moped helmet, hollering and screaming for him. 
D-Mac! D-Mac! As a junior defensive back, Dylan saw himself playing football at a small school or enlisting in the Navy. But an opportunity to show his talent at the running back position his senior year drew the eye of college recruiters. Suddenly, he was being pursued by the likes of Jim Tressel, then the head coach at Youngstown State, Bob Stoops, then the defensive backs coach at Kansas State, and Sherman Smith, then the running backs coach at Miami of Ohio. Dylan McCullough looked out the window of his third-period English class at Campbell Memorial High School and saw a tall man emerge from a candy apple red Mercedes-Benz with tan interior and tricked-out gold rims. A few minutes later, he got a pink slip message to leave class and go to the office, where the tall man stuck out his hand and said with a firm handshake, I'm Sherman Smith, the running backs coach at Miami University. A former star quarterback at Miami, Smith was a second-round draft pick at running back for the Seahawks and went on to play eight years in the NFL. He had a booming voice, thick arms, and broad, square shoulders. He walked and talked and carried himself like a former pro. McCullough was immediately drawn to him. It was just something about his personality, McCullough says. The way he presented himself, he had things that I hadn't seen out of a man or mentor. He was on top of his details. He was successful. He had played in the NFL. He got his degree. I wasn't around that type of person. The Mercedes was nice too, you know, he laughed. That was slick. As a Youngstown native himself, Smith thought guys from the area were tough. But the coaches told him McCullough was special, a thin kid. But when he couldn't run around people, he'd go through them. McCullough was serious that day in the office, offering few smiles and answering with a lot of, yes, sir, and no, sir. But he was also intelligent and expressive. Smith thought he'd very much like to work with him. The feeling was mutual. Despite interest from other schools, the decision to attend Miami University was easy for McCullough, especially after the home visit during which Smith charmed Comer as well. Well, Coach Smith was hard not to love, Comer says, laughing. I fell in love with him the first time. He was just a gentleman, and he was very attentive and respectful to me. Smith drove them to visit the school and was back at Campbell Memorial a few months later for signing day, when McCullough signed his letter of intent to play at Miami. When McCullough arrived on campus, the coaches tried to turn him into a wide receiver, but he pushed for an opportunity to work with Smith and the running backs, accepting a redshirt freshman year to pursue the position he believed he was meant to play. I would tell the players, you may not be looking for a father, but I'm going to treat you like you're my sons, Smith said. And so I just looked at every guy like my son. I just wanted to be a positive role model for Dylan and exemplify what I thought my father exemplified for me. He was everything, McCullough says. If anything was going on, I was going to talk to Coach Smith. Everybody in that room gravitated towards Coach Smith just because that's the type of person he was. What he's about rubs off on you, so I always wanted to be around that. Smith left Miami University after that season to be the tight ends coach at the University of Illinois. But he and McCullough stayed in touch. He watched from afar as McCullough put together a Hall of Fame career in Oxford, rushing 36 touchdowns and setting a school record with 4,368 rushing yards. McCullough was surprised when his name wasn't called in the 1996 draft but he was invited to a few workouts and ended up signing with the Bengals. He was leading the NFL in preseason rushing before he suffered a season-ending knee injury in Cincinnati's final exhibition game. After a few more looks in the NFL, a couple of seasons in Canada, several more knee surgeries, and a brief flirtation with the XFL, McCullough finally accepted in 2001 that the dream of pro football was over. A few years later, married and the father of one son, McCullough took a job teaching communications and coaching football at Harmony Community School in Cincinnati. Despite rising to the ranks of principal and making a good salary, his first taste of coaching gave him the itch to coach full-time, and he reached out to his alma mater about an opportunity to join the staff. Smith had followed a similar path, first teaching and coaching high schoolers, then working his way up the ranks from Miami University to the University of Illinois, the Houston Oilers, the Washington Redskins, and finally, the running backs coach for the Seahawks. He was with Seattle when he got a call from McCullough, asking for advice as he started his new job at Miami University. By 2014, McCullough was coaching at Indiana University. And the two were reunited on the field as Smith welcomed McCullough to Seattle for a coaching internship. He saw firsthand that his former player had a real future on the sideline. He had no idea that off the field, McCullough was consumed by the search for his family. A few days before Thanksgiving 2017, 
Carol Briggs got home from work, sat down on the couch, and opened a Facebook message from an unfamiliar man. Did you have a baby in 1972 in Allegheny County that you placed for adoption? Luckily, I was already sitting, she says. Briggs had thought often of baby John. Every year, she wished him a happy birthday on her Facebook wall, and she regularly searched adoption websites to see if he might be looking for her. Briggs could still hear her mother's voice, saying more and more often in the years before she died, you need to find that boy. Never married and without any other children, Briggs would joke to her cousin Robin that one day, baby John might show up at her door and walk in to find her home alone, dancing around the house to Funkadelic. She called her older brother, who warned her that the message might be from someone trying to bribe or extort her. She responded anyway, and after a few short messages, she agreed to speak with McCullough on the phone that night after he got out of practice. In the hours before the call, she Googled his name and read every article she could find. She stared at his pictures and tried to find herself in his face. It wasn't hard to see it now. The mouth, the nose, the eyes. McCullough called Briggs from a hallway at USC as he awaited the start of a football family dinner. They spoke as if they'd known each other for years. An easy back and forth as they shared where life had taken them in the 44 years since she'd laid him down on that bed and let him go. She learned that he had never gone to live with a doctor in Columbus, that in fact they had just been a few miles away from each other in Youngstown for all of McCullough's childhood. She likely shopped at the same grocery store as Adele Comer, perhaps even passing young McCullough in the aisles. She was certain that her sports fanatic father, now deceased, had read about McCullough's high school exploits in the paper. McCullough was overjoyed to find his birth mother, though a mother had never been what was missing. Within probably the first five or six minutes, he says, Who is my father? Briggs says. She took a breath. She had probably told only three people the man's name after making the decision to not tell the father all those years ago. She had been determined to never let him learn of the baby years later because of careless gossip. She hesitated, but decided McCullough had a right to know. Your father's name is Sherman Smith, Briggs told him. McCullough, leaning against a wall in the hallway, felt as though he might pass out. He started flashing back to all of his memories with Smith and all the times people had joked about him being a carbon copy of his coach throughout college when he returned to coach at Miami University during his internship with the Seahawks. Man, you and Coach Smith look alike. Man, you all walk alike. You all this, you all this, McCullough says. There's no reason to connect those dots because you weren't even thinking about them. A sense of pride that went through me, like, wow, that explains these things. And then I also start thinking about all the similarities of our path. That just blew me away. Not only had he known his father for 28 years, but Smith was also his mentor, the man he had looked up to since he was 16 years old. McCullough thought of a photo of him and Smith at Campbell Memorial High, both beaming as he signed his letter of intent to play at Miami University. The same photo he had pinned to the corkboard that hung in his college dorm room. The same photo that was at that moment sitting in a Ziploc bag in the drawer of his nightside table, a bag that had traveled with him through every job and every move. If you would have told me to pick who my father was, there's no way I would have picked him because I might have thought I wasn't worthy for him to be my father, McCullough says. I felt like my blessings came full circle because I'd always wanted to be somebody like him. I could hear him take a big breath, Briggs says, and I could kind of hear him choke up a little. And finally, he says, well, I've known Sherman my whole life. The next morning, McCullough texted Smith, asking if they could talk about something important. It was November, and Smith assumed that McCullough had gotten a coaching opportunity he wanted to discuss. Instead, McCullough began by talking about his search for his birth parents, how he had found his biological mother, and she was from Youngstown, just like them. Praise the Lord, Smith recalls saying. What a blessing. And then he said, I asked her who my biological father was, and she said you. Smith was quiet, 63 years old. He had been married to his college sweetheart for 42 years and had reared a grown son and a daughter. He hadn't heard the name Carol Briggs in more than four decades. He never knew she was pregnant, never knew there was a baby. He knew he couldn't deny the possibility that he was McCullough's father, but he wanted proof. Even more, he wanted time to think. He asked McCullough if he could call him back later. Stunned and a little hurt, McCullough agreed. 
Smith sat in his office, guilt washed over him. Even though he hadn't been told about the baby, he couldn't shake the feeling that he had let Briggs and McCullough down. He felt awful that he had left Briggs in such a difficult position and regretted all the years he had missed out on being a father to McCullough. He had built a life making a difference in young men's lives. He had spoken to his athletes and his kids about being responsible, being accountable. Being irresponsible is not neutral, Smith says. When you're irresponsible, someone becomes responsible for what you've been irresponsible for. He thought about what this would say about him as a man and found himself hoping that a paternity test would show that he wasn't McCullough's father. It was a thought that brought him only more guilt. He asked to speak to Briggs. Briggs cried her way through work the day she was set to talk to Smith. I hadn't talked to Sherman in 45 years, and after 45 years, this is probably not the icebreaker conversation that you want to have with a guy that you used to fool around with. Hey, we've got a 45-year-old son, and how are you? So no, I wasn't looking forward to that at all. Not at all. There was no need to worry. Smith was calm and kind, and the two settled into a nice conversation, catching up for a long time before they even got to talking about McCullough. Smith apologized to her for her having to make such a difficult decision at such a young age, and Briggs explained why she had felt it was best to not tell Smith about the baby. She said that over the years, she just wanted to know that McCullough was okay, and Smith reassured her that her son was a good man. Briggs hung up, full of emotion, but relieved that Smith wasn't angry with her. Smith hung up feeling much more certain that McCullough was his son. Smith talked to his wife, Sharon, and his brother, Vincent. He talked to his children, Sherman and Siobhan. He thought about McCullough's coaching internship a few years earlier, how Seahawks assistant defensive line coach Pat Rule hadn't stopped cracking jokes about Smith and his protege, acting like a father-son duo. McCullough sent Smith an old article from his days in the CFL and Smith couldn't believe his eyes. I'm looking at this thing and thinking, I don't remember taking this picture. I don't remember doing this article, Smith says. I'm looking at Dylan, and I'm thinking, it's me. That got me. I called my aunt in Youngstown, and I told her about it. And she'd went on YouTube and pulled up some pictures of Dylan. And she called me back. She said, nephew, I can save you the money on the DNA tests. The more Smith thought about it, the more he realized the story wasn't about him and his guilt. It was about McCullough and what he had been through. It was about a life without a father, about the years McCullough had spent looking for his birth parents, hoping to fill a void, wanting to know where he'd come from. It was said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, Smith says. I started thinking about Dylan. Sometime in the weeks between that first phone call and the test results, Smith realized that he was hoping he was McCullough's father. That, in fact, he would be devastated if the results came back otherwise. When the test came in, it showed a 99.99% chance that Smith was, indeed, McCullough's father. Both were elated. I look at it and I just say, it's a God thing, Smith says. It's grace. It's undeserved. And that's what's made it great for Dylan and for all of us, how everyone has embraced this and is excited about our new family. McCullough understood why Smith had been so curt at first. McCullough had spent his whole life wondering about his birth parents. Briggs had spent her whole life wondering about her child. Smith had gone from zero to a 45-year-old son in one phone call. He needed time. A few weeks after the paternity test came back, McCullough had a recruiting trip near Nashville, where Smith and his wife had relocated after his retirement. McCullough made a special trip to see the man he now knew as his father. I'm pretty sure he was nervous, Smith says of that day. I laugh because I'm looking out the window because I know he's supposed to be coming. I'm standing there, and I see he parks at the corner down there. And he's parked there for five minutes. I said, what's he doing? He finally pulls up and gets out of the car. As McCullough walked up the steps to the house, Smith greeted him with open arms and said, My son. It was the first time in McCullough's life that anyone had called him that. For so many years that I was around him, the embrace was, hey, coach, how you doing, Smith says. But this is, man, my son. Maybe I was doing it for me to help me really fully understand. I know he was saying it from a place of, I'm proud. This is my son, McCullough says. I'd never heard that. I'd never been referred to like that before, period. It really hit me hard emotionally. When I sit here at this point and I'm looking at the things that I've done, I'm happy that I'm able to be somebody that he's proud of. At first, McCullough was concerned that his adoptive mother might be upset by his relationships with his birth parents. 
but as soon as he heard that Briggs and Comer had hit it off in their first phone call, he knew everything would be fine. All I can say is, are you serious? Over and over again, are you serious? Comer says of McCullough's journey, leading to Smith. It's just a miracle that his birth father's been in his life since he was 16, 17 years old. That's my son, and I want nothing but 100% best for him. He needed that, and God gave it to him, and it's in God's time. Both Smith and Briggs are endlessly grateful to Comer for raising McCullough with the wisdom they didn't yet have. She did what I couldn't do, Briggs says of Comer. She was an adult. She was married at the time, so you know she brought him into a family structure. That was what I wanted for him. I wanted him to have what I had. And she gave him that. She gave him all the tools that he needed in growing up to be the successful man that he is right now. This past June, the two Miami University Hall of Famers, Smith and McCullough, were back on campus to witness the verbal commitment of McCullough's son, Dylan McCullough II, to the Red Hawks football team. The younger McCullough is a defensive back, just like Smith's son, Sherman, who played the position at Miami as well. In July, a huge family reunion in Youngstown brought McCullough, Briggs, Smith, and Comer together for the first time. All of McCullough's parents in one place, reflecting on nurture versus nature, what is inherited versus what is taught, and the many different forms of parenthood. It was both the culmination of a journey and the start of something new for the families that the journey had introduced. A man found his parents, a mother found her child, and a father discovered a son he never knew he was missing. There is no jealousy, no resentment, and no regret. There is just gratitude for the winding paths that brought them all together. When I look at Dylan, the type of guy he is, it was a gift to us, Smith says. And to think, Dylan felt we were a gift to him. Now I know who I am and where I'm from, McCullough says. I got all of the pieces to the story. I got them all now. Joining me now is ESPN Sarah Spain, the co-host of Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the host of the That's What She Said podcast. Sarah, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This story is beyond fascinating to me. How did it first come to your attention? My friend Skip, one of my best friends here in Chicago, uh, actually played football at Miami of Ohio, was teammates with Dylan McCullough. And Dylan found out uh, the, the crazy news in November of last year, 2017. Mm-hmm. And as it started to get around to some friends and teammates, he reached out to Skip in part because of their friendship, but also because Skip has done some screenwriting and works in, in advertising copywriting for brands. And so he kind of said, you know, where can I tell this story and who should I bring it to? And thankfully for me, Skip said, oh, my friend Sarah's at ESPN and this would make a great, at the time he thought 30 for 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually we realized, you know, 30 for 30 is more what has come before and, and uh, E60 is more what's happening now. Right. Um, and so he told me over lunch in about a 10 minute quick retelling and I already had the chills and thought that this was just an incredible story. So took it right to Connor Shell and the creative uh, folks here at ESPN. This is in, but looking back as um, I know you mentioned in uh, the written piece very well, how everything does seem to click for Dylan, but um, and yes, you mentioned there are moments from his days in Miami where it's like, Oh, you know what? That makes sense. And like when I was at Seattle, that made sense. But also, did you find that he sort of looks like at back at that with a smile now or sad at like missed opportunity or misconnection? One of the most um, insightful things for me, or I guess things I can take away from the people that I interviewed for this story is that it truly feels like they are genuinely not regretful. They're not looking back and, and thinking about missed time. They're not wondering what could have been all of them seem to be very present in the moment Mm -hmm. and able to see that overall, this has been a blessing in a way that most people's stories don't turn out with all parties wanting to be involved, all parties being respectful and loving of the other people. Um, And I think that is the overriding feeling for all of them is this just gratitude that all of these paths brought them together and less about what could have been. Now, this is still fairly new, right? And there's the magic and discovery of relationships that you didn't have before, of mm-hmm. realizing that you've all been looking for each other in one way or another, other than Sherman, of course, but that relationship had been established. Um, I don't know if over the course of time, it's who gets to spend what holiday with whom, or it's 
getting to know someone and realizing that you wish you'd had them around for all of that time instead of just a short window. But uh, for now, they do genuinely feel like, and they're not just saying it for my benefit, that they're just so grateful for everything and, and they're looking on the positive side of it all. So deal, the the woman who adopted uh, Dylan McCullough, I mean, she's all just very happy for him. I mean, because I mean, sometimes you hear about with the uh, adoptive children when they go, I want to find my birth parents. It seems that you hear at times it could be a little resentment, like, well, you know, I struggled and put a roof over your head as best right. I could for X amount of years, and now you're so happy to find something else. But has she been really embracing of this situation? Yeah, Dylan was actually a little bit worried about that at the beginning of this because there is sort of this trope of the adoptive parents feeling like, oh, are we not enough if you need to go find your birth parents? But the very first call that Adele had uh, his adoptive mom with Carol, his birth mom, he said they absolutely hit it off. And I think because Adele and her husband, AC, divorced when Deland was so young, mm-hmm. she married one more time and it was brief and sort of combative. And there were other relationships throughout that were sort of in and out. She essentially was, for the most part, a single mom and raising him without yeah. um, a father figure. There were male figures in his life, uncles and coaches and such. But she understood, even if he wasn't super outspoken about it, that there was a bit of a... a a, a missing piece there. Mm-hmm. And so to discover then that not only is his father someone he's known for almost 30 years, but that he had a relationship with him from the age of 16 on and knew him and respected him and looked up to him in ways that were very fatherly. I think that makes it easier for her to be just happy. And and, and then I think deep down, if you truly love someone and you want the best for them, then allowing them the joy of discovering where they came from and having a relationship with the people that made them Mm -hmm. is the most selfless and loving thing you can do, putting aside any insecurity or any uh, jealousy you might have on your own. And I really think that's where Adele comes from in in all of her interactions with Sherman and Carol and and even Dylan after he discovered it. Has uh, Sherman Smith's family, his, his wife and his grown kids, have they really embraced him as well? Yes, actually, Sharon, uh, Sherman kind of joked about this. Sharon, his wife of 42 years, they have two children of their own, uh, and, uh, and grandkids. I mean, from the moment that he told her, it was a, a brief beat to kind of take it all in. Mm-hmm. And then it was more grandbabies and more <laughs> family and just so excited about all of it. She's a wonderful woman. She already knew Deland from interactions with Sherman and they had even gone to dinner right on the last day of his internship with Seattle when he uh, was a coaching intern for the Seahawks. Um, they had a relationship and she has been super enthusiastic throughout. And same with, um, um, I, you know, I don't know as much about Sherman's daughter, but I know Sherman's son, Sherman um, the second, uh, Dylan had a really honest conversation with him. I don't want to take your father away from you. I don't want to be someone who comes into your life and you feel like is pulling him from you. And Sherman, Sherman Jr. said, he was the best man in my wedding. Wow. He was my best friend. He is the greatest father anyone could ask for. And I want him to be that to as many people as he can be. And I want you to be able to experience and appreciate what it is to have him as your father the way that I have. Um, So just an incredibly generous spirit in terms of understanding what it would mean to deal in to have Sherman, you know, be there for him in, in, in a in a real role as as his dad. Well, now I know that uh, the uh, the state of Pennsylvania moved, like they passed a law that to open up the book, so to speak, on all these adoptions. What are the uh, logistics involved in getting that information from a state like Pennsylvania? Was that was that something that was like just filling out a form, or was that like a real commitment? That process. Um. So it started out. Uh, the process for him sort of looking on these sites where you can try to see if people are looking, but he had no information at all at the time. So when those, when those laws changed and you were able to access birth records, it was a process. I believe it was a full year or so after he submitted all the paperwork in Pennsylvania that, that the information came back. And that was years into looking in every other way. So it's pretty, it's pretty involved. There's a lot of paperwork involved you send it off and then you're sort of at the mercy of the time that they have. And especially because those laws had changed 
uh, there was a, there was sort of a big influx of people that were all sort of wanting that information all at once. So I believe it was pretty much a full year after he submitted all that paperwork that, that without a call or without any warning that it was coming, he came home to the envelope in the mail. Now, when you move forward and, you know, as you chronicle in the piece, how he reached out on Facebook and he found his mother and then the connection. And then once he talked to um, Sherman Smith and he's like, oh, yeah, I knew who Carol Briggs was. Like, how, why was there then the leap of like, maybe I should take the paternity test? So I think to be 63, married for 42 years, have your own kids and grandkids, and to have someone you've known for almost 30 years out of the blue say that they've been told you're their father, whether or not you you remember having a relationship and you know that the there is a possibility that physically it could have happened, that's still such a giant surprise and such a blow to um you know what you've been living your whole life and, mm-hmm. and especially as a coach and as a leader of men, he talked so much about what he considered, you know, being accountable and responsible that at the beginning, as I wrote in the piece, he actually had hoped that he wasn't the father because of what it would say about him and what it would mean about the the situation that he put Carol in, even unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time and after conversations with all sorts of people, he he really wanted the paternity test to come back and have him be the father. Um, I think as I wrote and as Sherman eloquently said, you know, Carol had been had knew, knew she had a son and had been looking for him for years. Dylan knew he had parents that he wanted to find and had never met. Sherman didn't know any of it. He mm-hmm. went from zero to a 45-year-old son. And the reaction from him was, I just want to know for sure. I, and, and I don't really blame him, and I don't really blame Carol's brother, who when she first got the message from Dylan on Facebook said, this might be someone trying to extort you or, or get money from you. The way the internet works and the way people are in 2018, you just have to wonder if it's somebody trying to get money from you or trying to scam you. And so I think he just wanted to know for for sure. Also, he hadn't spoken to Carol since they were 16 and 18. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what kind of woman she is. He doesn't know anything about her life. Um, what if she's saying that now she wants something from him? You know, they're, they're just, right. there are a lot of, there are a lot of ways this could be bad and could have gone badly for anyone involved. And I think to be cautiously, uh, and carefully going forward with it was, was a smart move for everybody involved. It's just, it's just wonderful that it was all done out of good faith. Right. Now, Carol Briggs, his, uh, Dylan's biological mother, uh, how is this, it seems that this, uh, in a way affected her deeply because it seems why you profile her that she had this baby and she did, she was, was doing very well in school, but like that was it. Like she, um, you know, when she connected with Sherman Smith, it's like, no, I never got married, never had kids. Like, so what is her, what was her life like, you know? after giving birth to, to John, a.k.a. Dylan, what was her life like after that to now? And what is she doing now? Yeah, it seemed like she had a really wonderful childhood, very close with her parents and her siblings. She's very successful. She works at Dick's Sporting Goods. She um, has been, you know, uh, an ambitious woman. She has, you know, bought her own house and um, seems to have a, a great social, happy life. Um, she just, and, and I asked her about not ever getting married or going on to have other children. And she just said she wanted the right person. And she, if she was going to have kids, it was going to be with that partner. And she just never, never met that partner. Mm-hmm. I think, um, it didn't seem like she was super regretful about the way that all worked out. Of course, when you're in your sixties, you've had time to sort of accept and, and find the joy in whatever it is that you do have in life and family and everything else. But I do think she feels like there's this brand new, wonderful element to her life that is Deland and his grand and his kids. So her grandkids and Sherman's side of the family and Adele's side of the family. And, you know, they all came together in July for this huge family reunion and um, to go from uh, what can be a little bit of a solo existence, although she does have a brother with a young, with a young child that she takes care of a lot and gets to spend time with a lot, but uh, she, she does live alone. So to go from that to having this massive family that's been added to her life and also just to know that Dylan turned out to be such a good man and be so successful, so happy, 
a great father. Um, I can't imagine the curiosity and, and the wondering you would do about what that person you gave birth to is out there in the world doing. And she had mentioned, you know, I, he could have, it was Youngstown. He could have been in, in, and, and she didn't know he, she, she thought, you know, she, she gave birth and, and, and he was adopted out of Pennsylvania, but he could have been anywhere in the world doing anything. And she wondered about the bad stuff he might get into. And so to discover all the good stuff, I think, um, is just, uh, such a weight off her shoulders of all the years of wondering. I also, as you point out in your reporting and writing, Sarah, I found it was interesting that, uh, this adopted agency would say, Oh no, this, uh, your baby was placed with a doctor and his mm-hmm. family. It's sort of like the equivalent of, you know, when somebody tells a kid, oh, no, we, we took the dog to live in a farm yes. for the rest of his life. Like just saying something like just go away and not realizing that here he was in Youngstown, Ohio, and they maybe even walked by each other and never knew it. Yeah, we kind of had a giggle with her about that, that we wondered if that was just the standard to make young women especially feel okay about what happened and and what the future of their child would be Mm -hmm. um there was never a doctor in columbus she's not sure where they got that from or if it was an invention that they that they said but yeah it does feel very much like the dog went to a farm upstate kind of um and i don't know if she had never heard that if she would have wondered if he was nearby but i think believing that he was in columbus sort of made it so she didn't spend her time looking around to see if the people around her might be him it's almost like we're creating an ignorance is bliss for your own good right. that we're determining. Right. But I guess after thinking of that, though, the thing that everything that you've talked about with the reunion and this and that, to have such a large group of people be so devoid of resentment in this situation to be mm-hmm. that healthy, it seems to me that that is more of the anomaly here than this This completely fascinating story <laughs> wild twist right that's as that's as fascinating as finding out that his father was someone he knew his whole life right um i agree with that and well we we had to ask for the proof of the paternity test to make sure that the twist was real because it was so surprising mm-hmm. and we also had to sort of get really into all the information and all the interviews we did to be sure that this was real because it felt like we needed an a, a villain Right. It didn't sure. feel possible that this this wonderful group of people who are all disconnected and, and it's not, oh, what a great family. It's because they all were raised right They're They all had completely separate lives and turned out to be these wonderful people. And, and um, it's I mean, it's a joy to tell a story like that, especially for someone like me who I had done a feature uh, that was maybe seven or eight minutes on Rob Gronkowski and a, and a young fan of his who suffers from an epilepsy disorder. Mm-hmm. And I had done a feature on the on the Cubs and the bleachers and um, they were short. And um, the, the Gronkowski one was a serious and very sad topic, but had some hope, hopeful uh, uh, ending to it as the kid continues to get better. Um, but to take on an E60 and if it had been one that is terribly sad or involves death or or the, the tragedies that they so often do, that would have been hard for me because I am such an empathetic person that I mm-hmm. I worry in the interviews that I'll cry if they're crying or that I won't <laughs> be able to keep it together. And I did all right with this better than I expected myself to. Um, but it it's it's a gift to get to tell a story where everybody is better off and where where magic happens. I mean, it, it really is. And to get to put it out there and have people read it and digest it and watch it and feel better. And I've heard from a lot of people who have, are adopted or have adopted kids and, you know, their fascination with the story and, and what that might tell them that they want to do about their own lives or reinforce decisions they've already made. Um, it's, 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 like I said, it's a gift. It's, it's so cool to get to put it out there and see the reactions. I mean, yeah, that, that was the part that I was, I kept waiting for you to shoot a drop. Right. Like someone's going <laughs> to, someone's going to be ripped. Someone's going to get upset. Yeah. No, I love you too. No, and I love you more. That, that was the only friction. Who loved who yeah. more? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah. But, but going back to part of like the history, Dylan McCullough did when he was with his mother who quickly got divorced from not the doctor, but the DJ. Mm-hmm. And, um, they struggled. Like there were times where, you know, the power, the lights or the heat, like, or what was, they were going to have to eat wasn't available. And Dylan talks about how, well, football kind of fueled me because, you know, you can be go out there and be pretty mad and you're just going to hit somebody. Mm-hmm. 
And he was able to not just, not necessarily let that go, but channel it once he got to Miami and then has a pro- prolific career, not drafted, but then he's about to show the NFL world, I told you so. Then he gets injured and has to give up his playing career. Uh, does he credit the transition of those two times, like channeling his abilities and then channeling his, like, is now football playing less life to Sherman Smith and guiding him in those process? Not as much as a Disney retelling would say, yeah. right? Um, he was always a presence and he, he did call him when he got the job at Miami of Ohio, not for his first job. And I sort of asked, why didn't you call him when you, when you got your first coaching gig when you were working at the high school? Cause he started in high school administration as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, I didn't want to bother him. Um, you know, we certainly talked off and on, but it wasn't like cell phone days where you could just text somebody and, you know, it just wasn't as simple. So, uh, you know, I, I also didn't want people to think I was asking for anything until I'd earned it. And Dylan is a very proud man. And even the sort of sad way his NFL aspirations ended where he did went, went on to the CFL and then tried the XFL and, you know, really did everything he could to make it. He seems to have a very healthy acceptance of that and to say, I wanted to prove to everyone I could do it, and I did. Mm-hmm. By leading the NFL and rushing in the preseason, by by showing people I belonged, that was what I most wanted. And he's always had a chip on his shoulder from high school to college to NFL of not being given the respect he deserved. And so I think, you know, he, in the coaching world, wanted to once again prove he belonged without needing help from anyone or asking for help. So it mm-hmm. wasn't until he got to Miami that he sort of reached out to Sherman just to say, Hey, I'm now, you know, working in the job that you used to do. And then, you know, as far as getting, getting the Seattle intern internship, coaching internship through, through Smith, there were many ways in which Smith helped him and led him along the way. And part of that was just by being a model for him mm-hmm. that he looked up to without even necessarily knowing that he was leading by example. Um, but I wouldn't say that it was as, Disney perfect as at each step of the way he would reach out to Sherman and he would tell him this is do this or do that. Um, but it is remarkable how similar their paths are starting in high school administration to coaching to Miami of Ohio to a Big Ten school to a college to the NFL. Um, it's crazy. And to your point about one of the the lines that you that you have in the story about how Sherman Smith says you know, I'm not your father, but I'm going to be a father to all of you. Mm-hmm. This isn't, to make it clear to anyone that didn't get it, like this isn't, Sherman Smith wasn't just taking calls and for dealing and doing this just for him. Like this is a guy that did it for everybody that he worked mm-hmm. with. Yeah. Um, and that was a, that was an interesting thing that he sort of already lived by. It was like, I'm not going to be your father, but I'm going to treat you all like my sons. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what Dylan needed. And I don't know that Sherman, Sherman knew he was adopted. And I know Sherman knew that in that one year of them being together at Miami of Ohio, that Dylan was leaning on him for stuff and asked him a lot of questions and relied on him a lot. I don't know that he ever really understood the power of who he was in, in that 18 year old boy's life mm-hmm. um, until now, even. Um, and, and it, what's also remarkable is he did leave to go coach elsewhere after just that one red shirt year for Dylan. And the fact that their relationship continued on for almost three decades before finding out that he was his father is a testament to that connection. And you wonder how much of it is just he was a, he was a, 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 an inspiration and he was this kind of NFL pro, broad-shouldered big guy that Dylan could look up to. And how much is that just chemistry, pheromones, like the connection that is because you're actually related? So – what are for this whole group, this whole super healthy, I love everybody group, <laughs> what are their plans? Like, what are the plans like for the future, like for the holidays? Like, is this something going to, is it like, okay, I know who you are now? Or like, no, like now, like we're in each other's lives. Like, oh, it's absolutely now we're in each other's lives. Carol, I actually ran into and we hung out a little bit at the Bears Chiefs preseason game. She had come in town. She already had plans for a friend's birthday, but made sure she saw Dylan the night before and then ended up spending the day at the game and meeting up with her friends later. Um, 
Dillon picked up a whole bunch more Chiefs fans, and in his first year as an NFL coach, he's got a lot more ticket requests than he probably <laughs> imagined because he doesn't just have one family with four of his own kids and his wife and everybody else. He's got four families now. He's got Adele's and Carol's and uh, and Sherman's. Um, no, they definitely seem to be very much in each other's lives. Sherman and his wife have plans uh, to drive out to a bunch of games in Kansas City from Nashville, which is where they now live after retirement. Um it is, I don't know about, uh, holidays. I know Dylan's trying to focus on, you know, being, being an NFL coach for the first time. Hmm. Um, but they are very much in each other's lives. And, um, you know, Carol and Sherman will chat every once in a while and catch up and uh, Adele and, and Carol. And, and so I think, um, this wasn't a, I wanted to know where I came from and now I know it's, uh, now I know, and wow, what a wonderful, amazing group of people. And let's, let's all be in each other's lives and make each other's lives better. So in all this chaos, and is it built to this big dramatic twist in the aftermath of it? What, what was the, what did you learn the most from the story? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, in, in practical terms, I learned a lot about sort of the adoption laws and, and paperwork and, and, and how difficult and in some cases, easy for some people, the search goes on and on and they never find them. And for some, it's a couple of years. And one, you know, that was the second Facebook message he sent. He sent to one other Carol Briggs and that, hmm. that, and that was it. Right. And she responded, I think, within an hour or something to that first message. So um, how easy or how hard it can be, I think, um, I think. I'm a, I'm personally, I'm a, I'm a control freak. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I try not to be, but I have these big expectations for things, whether it's a party I'm throwing where I need everything I plan to go absolutely right, or it's a trip I'm going on where we need to be here at this time because that's what I have written on the thing. <laughs> um, and I'm working on it and I'm trying to just also be, be grateful in, in every moment, even when things aren't exactly what you thought they'd be. And, the way that Dylan in, in his entire life, whether it's not judging his adoptive father for leaving and not being in his life at all. He said, that's, that's him. You know, that if he didn't want to be around, that's his choice to his, to his mother's struggles sometimes with, with, um, paying the bills. You know, she was doing her best and she was a single mom and, or some of her relationships with combative guys, you know, the needs of a woman. I don't know what she needed in terms of support or love or anything else. So I understand. He's so understanding at every part of his life of the twists and turns and the ups and downs. And he's such a proud man to learn to just sort of let life go and, and be able to push through and, and view it in, in such a positive way and, and be still on this like drive and this ambition, this goal to get to where you believe you belong, um, was, was noteworthy for me as someone who needs to like sometimes just let things be a little bit. Take a deep um, breath and take a step back. Yeah. I've also had an incredibly lucky life. And I think, you know, as I'm knocking on wood, part of that, part of that control comes from having been able to have things go the way I wanted most mm-hmm. of the time. And so to learn from someone who's had a much more interesting and, and complicated and complex life, um, was unique and, and, and probably good for me. Uh, but I also learned a ton about long form journalism <laughs> and putting together a E60 and incredible production and editing from John Minton and our, and our editor Mike and, and all the work that they did. Um, and, and the, the great task of telling a, a story and having it be truthful and fair and honest and respectful and, and all that. Um, it was a great crash course for me since I've never done a real, like true long form piece like this before. Well, you and your whole team did a fantastic job. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Take care. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.